You remember how when we were kids, it seemed to take forever for Christmas to get here? So like in, when I grew up, Christmas, uh, school always started in August, and the first day of school until Christmas break was like the longest time in the, in the history of the world, right? And it took forever to get there. But now that I'm adult, an adult, it seems like Christmas gets here faster and faster every year. Anyone? Right? Uh, I was driving around. I had to come out here the day before Thanksgiving, and I had to pick something up, and I was driving back home, and the radio guy said, only 30 days till Christmas. And I went, uh-uh. And I went home, and I counted, and I was like, oh, he's right. Sneaking up on me. By the way, if you don't know, 17 days from today, Christmas, whether you're ready or not. Now, did any of you ever try to, pick, uh, try to guess what your, your Christmas presents were when your mom put them under the tree? My sister and I got really good at this, and Sis even showed me how if you took a little steam, you could, you could make the tape loosen up, and you know, then you'd have to replace the tape. And Mom got so mad at us that she quit putting the presents under the tree. She started hiding them in the house, but we were relentless. We, we knew every nook and cranny of that house. I'd crawled through it all, and so we would find the presents, and we were never surprised on Christmas Eve. That's, when, that's the biblically correct time to open presents, right, B- Christmas Eve? That's what I thought until I married Janie, and they did it on Christmas Day, and I was so confused, and I was like... You're doing it wrong but anyway uh personal preference not biblically correct and so what mom did was mom started putting a code on the christmas gift she wouldn't put names on it she would wrap them she would hide them somewhere we would find them but we didn't know what the code was there's like a little dot or something and, and we had no clue what it was and so on on christmas eve we'd go to open presents and mom would just smirk she was so pleased with herself because we'd have no clue she finally surprised us and that worked great until mom forgot the code and i'm not making this up there was one christmas eve where we just started opening random presents and when we got done mom was like oh that's sis is present I'm like curlers yeah it really put a damper on the this you know opening presents and, and being surprised by all of that but but mom was trying to mom was trying to keep us in the spirit one of the things that puts me in the spirit for christmas every year is christmas lights what was it rachel you told your father-in-law she made him laugh because he said what's your favorite color and she said christmas lights is that what you said christmas it doesn't matter christmas lights and i love christmas lights well janie's family <clears throat> we always celebrate thanksgiving with them the day uh, the, the saturday after thanksgiving it's called gang, uh, gardener thanksgiving everybody knows they're going to come we play all kinds of games so my, whole, uh, my immediate family was there, so Waylon was there with us. And we played with Waylon all day. It was raining outside some. If y'all remember that Saturday right after Thanksgiving a week ago yesterday, it was raining, and so we were trapped in the house. And, and at one point, Waylon didn't get a very good nap, and, he's, and he loves to go play in Amy's car. That's what he calls Janie. He's Amy. And so he said, I want to play in Amy's car. And, and the more we ignored that, the more he said, I want to play in Amy's car. And I'm telling you, we can spend an hour in Amy's car. Every button, we, you know, we have to do the, the windshield wipers and the lights and the high beams Ooh, and there's a little mirrors you fold down you know the visor and there's a mirror and it lights up and it's just awesome we can kill an hour in amy's car and so he's like i want to play in amy's car and i said buddy we can't why and i said because we're gonna go look at christmas lights we had been invited out to uh elkhart to um they invited me to come pray before they lit the Christmas tree. It's the first time they've done this out in Elkhart, and it was really awesome, and we're standing there. And, and after they lit, lit the Christmas tree, and, and my brother-in-law was talking about how much he hates Hallmark movies, and his wife loves Hallmark movies, and we looked at each other. We go, dude, we're standing in the middle of a Hallmark movie right here in downtown Elkhart. It, it really looked like it until this souped-up John Deere tractor comes through the middle of town, and we went, no, Hallmark's gone, man, only in Elkhart, Texas. Right after that, this big uh, side-by-side, you know, four-wheeler through the middle of our Christmas carols, but it was almost a Hallmark movie, and they did a great job out there, but but when I said to Waylon, we can't play in the, in the car because we're going to go look at Christmas lights, he was all whining. He goes, 
is it Christmas? He was so excited. He's three. He doesn't even really know what Christmas is, but he is anticipating Christmas, right? Well, that agonizing wait that you and I understand for Christmas is what was going on the very first Christmas when Jesus was born. Only the, the wait was more agonizing than it, was, than it is for me and you or when we were kids, our, our kids and grandkids, because your Christmas comes once every 365 days. For the Jews of that time, it had never come. They'd been looking for the Messiah for thousands and thousands of years, year after year, generation after generation. There was no Messiah. 99% of the people who devoted their lives to this Messiah never got to see him. But for two people that we're going to look at today, their dream of seeing the Messiah born came true. We're going to look at them in, in the, the book of Luke. Now, as you hear this story today, I want you to think. I want you to think about this. If there's ever been a time in your life when God seemed silent, when, when you were seeking God and he wasn't speaking to you, when it seemed like he was not active, you're looking for God and he's not anywhere around. If you've ever felt like that, the Christmas story is for you. And, and he's, he's so inactive that you may be asking yourself, why do I keep doing this? Keep doing what? Why do I keep serving God? Why do I keep attending church? Why do I keep giving my money to the church? Why do I keep um, going on mission trips? Why do I do that over and over? Why do I maintain my integrity when everyone else around me is cheating? Why should I keep my virginity when it seems that I'm the only one? My high school, Borger High School, that had a clock up on the big tower, and the joke was the clock will, will start running again the day a virgin graduates from Borger High School. Well, I was one of those, and the day of, it didn't stop going. That, that wasn't the problem with that. Why, why, when everybody around me is doing stuff that, that, that the Bible says I shouldn't do, why do I keep doing this? If you've ever had any of those feelings, Christmas story is for you. We pick it up in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, this is the Herod that, that killed all the babies in Bethlehem, bad guy. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. So Zechariah and, and um, Elizabeth were preacher's kids. In our terms, preacher's kids. Not just preacher's kids. All right, my kids know what it's like to be preacher's kids, but these folks... Their granddad was a preacher. Their, their great-granddad was a preacher all the way back for generations. And Elizabeth could even trace her priestly granddads all the way back to Aaron, the very first priest. He was the brother of Moses. And Moses is like one of the greatest people in the history of Israel. I mean, these were preacher's kids. If there ever were, you can't be more of a preacher's kid than Elizabeth because her great-great-great-great-great-great-granddad was Aaron, the first priest. Now, look at this. Both of these preacher's kids were righteous. Now, notice what it says. Righteous in the sight of God. Righteous in whose sight? Not in their own, not, not, not in their own sight, not in the sight of people around them. These people were doing it right. It was way higher than, than what you think. God himself says in his word, they were doing it right. Observing all the Lord's commands and decrees, how? Blamelessly. This does not mean sinlessly. In the Old Testament, it talks about uh, Job was blameless. It doesn't mean sinless. There's only one who was sinless. That's Jesus Christ. It means even when they sinned, they did what God's word said, and they went to people, and they made things right, and, and they kept short accounts that way. If you were living blamelessly in the eyes of God, it means a private investigator could study every aspect of your life and find nothing that would mess up your reputation or harm the name of God. 
Can I tell you, it doesn't take long to look on Facebook to find stuff that harms the reputation of God. Okay, we'll just leave that there. Now, ask yourself, why would these two people at this point in history, why would they keep believing in God and living blameless lives when no one else in their world was doing it? It was clear to everybody else that all hope was gone. Well, these two preachers' kids, they based their lives on a promise that had been given to Abraham thousands of years before. And, and, when, when Liz and, and Zech were alive, it had been 700 years since God had done anything for the, is, the nation of Israel, and it had been 400 years since God had spoken to them through the prophets. This is the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Why would they keep on doing this? They got up day after day and lived their lives as though Christmas was coming. Now, let me say this to you. Please don't whine to me. If you've prayed for four minutes and God hasn't answered your prayer, oh, God doesn't care about me because he didn't answer my four-minute prayer. Some of you never even prayed four minutes. Some of you haven't prayed four hours. You haven't prayed four days. You haven't prayed 40 days or 40 years. These people had not heard from God in 400 years. Their anticipation was much greater than yours for Christmas. See, how did they do this? It's because they believe this. In the Christian life, this was before the Christian life, but in their lives with God, they believe We live by promises and not explanations. God is sovereign and he doesn't owe you an explanation, but he has promised you everything in the scriptures. Now these two preachers kids, look at this. Not only were they righteous and they lived blamelessly, they were also childless in verse 7. They were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And in that culture, this was considered a curse of God. You were called by the people cursed of God if you couldn't have a child. And so you know somebody said, you're living blamelessly? Why? You can't even have a kid. You're cursed of God. Could it get any worse? Yes. So these people who were living righteously in God's eyes, blameless, childless. Now look at the next part, last part of verse 7. They were both very old. Now the New King James Version says it better, and it says they were well advanced in years. Those of us who are a little more advanced in years, we like that better, right? We don't want it to say very old. They'd lived right before God. They were very old. They were well advanced in years, and God was not answering their prayer. It was obvious to everyone around them that the answer to their prayer for a child was no. But their faith wasn't based on circumstance. It was based on the promise of God. And this promise of God was made to Abraham 2,000 years before Liz and Zech were alive, before they were born. Let's look at that promise. Now, in in Genesis chapter 12, God finds this guy named Abram. It's before he changes his name to Abraham. And he says, go to a land I will show you. And I'm going to give your descendants all of this land. So he takes him to um, the land of Canaan, which which is where Israel is now. And he promised that he would give this land to them. Uh, in the future and so that's how we get the term promised land is because God promised it to Abram and here's what he says not only will I give you the land I will bless those who bless you and and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples how many peoples all peoples on earth will be blessed through you that's you that's me everyone will be blessed through this promise to Abraham and when you look at the life of the of the Israelite nation every blessing from that time until now in history goes back to this covenant with Abraham we call it the Abrahamic covenant now God said I'm gonna give you this land God created the heavens and the earth the Bible says so if he created the heavens and the earth who owns the heavens and the earth Who has the right to give the heavens and the earth or parts of the earth to anyone to whom he chooses? Who has that right? Because he is creator. God's the one who says, I'm going to give you the land. So 
the ownership of the land came from this covenant with Abraham. And if God says it, and, and it says it over and over in the scripture, God gave them the land. He has the right to give it. He has the right, right to take it away. So this covenant with Abraham, we call an unconditional covenant. It means they had to, Abraham, no matter what he did, what he didn't do, nothing depended on him. It all depended on God. And this was bizarre in that time because in that time, if you made a covenant with someone, the sovereign who is a king, the sovereign means whatever you say goes. If somebody, if you say they live, they live. If you say they die, they die. If you say they have to work for me, they have to work for you. That's what the sovereign does. In that, those days, the sovereign if, would say to a vassal, if you want to have a covenant with me, you need to saw an animal in half. And we're talking a big animal, goat, whatever. And I don't know if they sawed it this way or long ways. I'm assuming they sawed it this way because it would be faster, right? So they would saw it in two. There's blood, there's flesh, there's, there's all of this stuff. And they would lay one half right here. They would lay one half right here. And, and they would do something called the walk of death. They would walk in the middle of those two halves because they were saying to their sovereign, what we have done to, what I have done to this animal I believe you're going to do to me if I dare to break your covenant because you are sovereign. That was normal in those days. But in this covenant, the sovereign himself says, it doesn't depend on you. Nothing you do. It blew everyone's mind that the sovereign God said to Abraham, it doesn't matter what you do. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless all of the world through you. That includes you and me in 2020 through this unconditional covenant. No other religion has this. There is not a single religion in the world other than Christianity, other than, than it actually starts with the Jews and turns into Christianity, where the sovereign God of that religion says, I'll take it upon myself to make sure you're blessed and you bless everyone. So this is the beginning of the Jewish nation. Now, Abraham doesn't have a son at this time. God says, I'm going to give you a son. And in Romans, Paul is looking back at this and he said, Abraham thought he was as good as dead because he was 99 years old before his wife got pregnant. And right, I mean, that, just think of that. He's thinking he's dead and the Bible says he thinks his, his wife's womb is dead. And at 99, God gives him a son and his son was named Isaac. Isaac grows up, Isaac has two sons and he has um, Jacob and Esau and God says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, and one of those sons is named Joseph, and that's his favorite son. Because he's his favorite son, the other 11 sons or 10 sons get upset with him, and they sell him into slavery, and they send him off to Egypt, and they're like, ah, we got rid of that dreamer. He's gone. But God was in charge. In the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, there's more chapters about Joseph than any other character because God was with him. It says over and over, God was with him. So he's doing his thing down in Egypt, and he actually becomes the prime minister, the second in charge in Egypt. But his brothers don't know that. What happens in, in the promised land at that time is there's a famine, and there is no food. And so the brothers actually have to go to Egypt. It's the only place there's food. And because God's in charge, who did the brothers have to buy food from when they got to Egypt? Joseph. This was about 36 years later. God's always in charge, and God always keeps his promises. And they have to go buy this from Joe. Well, eventually they move everybody down there. There's 70 of them in this family. They move all to, to Egypt. Joseph dies. The Pharaoh who, who loved Joseph and put him in charge, he dies. And everybody forgets about this promise to Abraham. And the, the Jews become slaves. The, the, the Egyptians believed that the Jews were below them because they took care of animals. And they thought anybody who took care of an, animals was lower class. 
Not only that, part of their religion was that the Egyptians would shave their bodies, and so they were clean-shaven. The Hebrews weren't. The Hebrews had facial hair. The Hebrews um, had, had, had lots of hair on their arms and their legs, and, and the Egyptians thought they were ridiculous. And they said, let's make these ridiculous people our slaves. And so for 400 years, they're slaves. And the Bible says that God was with them and their population exploded. And eventually, Moses comes on the scene. Y'all have heard about Moses, right? Moses comes on the scene and he leads them out of, of uh, Egypt. We call it the Exodus. And they go to Mount Sinai and they re- receive a new covenant. Remember, the first covenant with Abraham was unconditional. This covenant, though, with Moses is conditional. God says, you obey me and I'll bless you. You disobey me, I'll curse you. Now, let me explain this this way. When God says he loves you, his love for you is unconditional. But you need to understand the enjoyment of that love is very conditional. God says, I love you, but you don't get to live any way you want to. You have to follow my conditions if you want to be blessed by me. So the history of the Jews is is this record of God making covenants and the Jews breaking the covenants. God said to them at Mount Sinai, this new covenant, he says, if you'll obey me, I'll bless you and you'll be my chosen people out of all the world. And, And they stand up as one. They said, we will do everything that God has said. We will obey you fully. And then Moses goes back up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. While he's gone, they said, we don't know where Moses is gone. We don't know about this God. Let's make a a golden cow and say, this is who led us out of Egypt, and let's follow this golden cow back to Egypt. And God got ticked. Now, let me tell you, it's 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 a very big thing to be in covenant with God because God is obligated to bless you if you obey. He's obligated to discipline you if you disobey. He will keep his end of a covenant whether you do or not. So, ownership of the land came from the Abrahamic covenant, but possession of the land and blessing in the land depend on this new covenant with with Moses at Mount Sinai. You with me? So, ownership, God gave them that ownership, but blessing and possession, that's two things that are different, and they have to obey to get that. So, they, they disobey God, and they make this golden calf, and spy that God leads them to the promised land. Who was it promised to? Abraham. Who was it promised to? Abraham. Pop quiz. Who was it promised to? Don't you like teachers that give you the answers and then say pop quiz? Okay. It was promised to Abraham 2,000 years before, or or hundreds of years before this. Then they finally get to the promised land. Joshua leads them into the promised land. They begin to conquer all of the land, and they become this legit nation. Their first king was Saul. He was a horrible king. Their second king, though, was David, and he was the greatest king in the history of the Jewish nation, and it was awesome. And he says, God, I want to build you a, a temple. And he says, no, because you're a man of blood. You can't build the temple, but your son, Solomon, can build the temple. Solomon builds the temple. Solomon, um, God says, ask anything you want. And Solomon says, I'm like a child. I don't know how to lead these people. Give me wisdom. God says, I'm I'm pleased with that, so he starts off great. But Solomon eventually messes up. Now, before that happens, he builds this temple for God, and everyone in the known world, there's peace on every side. They're not at war. Everyone hears about Solomon. They come to hear his wisdom. They come to see this majestic temple, all of his kingdom. If ever God was going to bless the whole world through Israel, it should have been when Solomon was on the throne. But he started off great, he ended bad because he started collecting wives like people in my generation collected baseball cards. Oh, there's another one, there's another one, there's another one. 700 wives, 300 concubines. And the scripture says man should have one wife. 
And this was detestable to God. And, and the reason the scripture says one wife, especially at this time, he says, because the other wives will, will lead you away from me. And at the end of his life, not only did Solomon build temples for the detestable idols, he began to worship those idols himself. And the kingdom was eventually ripped from his son's hands. Just this whole series of bad kings after that and all kinds of stuff. Eventually, the northern kingdom, they split in two. Israel is the northern kingdom. Judah is the southern kingdom. Israel is wiped off the face of the earth and never came back. And God said through the prophets, surely if, if Israel's wiped out Judah, the, the, the kingdom that's left, the southern kingdom, surely they will listen and obey and return to me. And they did not. And eventually God had to wipe them out and mo- remove them from the land. Now, you need to understand, this is what happens. Eugene Peterson, who gave us the, the message version of the Bible, he said this, a people's lives are only as good as their worship. Worship defines life. If worship is corrupt, life will be corrupt, which means if worship is alive, your spiritual life will be alive. If worship is dead, your spiritual life will be dead. Solomon began to worship foreign gods, and his spiritual life died, and it so impacted the kingdom that eventually the whole kingdom was removed from the land. From Solomon until the time of Zechariah and Elizabeth, 25 um, different rulers of, of Israel came on the scene. Syrians, Babylonians, Greeks, Romans, they all had their turn beating down the Jews, and the Jews became less and less of a factor in world history as time went by. 700 years since God had acted on their behalf, 400 years since God had spoken to them, So for two old people at this time, God hasn't even spoken to us in 400 years. To believe that the world is going to be blessed by this little tiny nation that's barely holding on by a thread, that is beyond cray-cray. Come on, admit it. There's no hope. Now, 65 years before this, Pompey the Great invades Jerusalem, conquers Jerusalem, and he walks right in the middle of the temple. He walks right into the Holy of Holies where the Jewish nation were taught in the Old Testament that if anybody walks in the Holy of Holies in the temple, they will immediately be killed by God. Pompey walks in the Holy of Holies, looks around, and nothing happens to him. Why? Because the glory of God had long departed Israel and Judah. He walks in there, looks around, nothing happens to him, and so everybody around starts believing Jupiter, the God of the Romans, must be more powerful than Jehovah, God of the Israelites. Zechariah was alive when Pompey went into the temple. His father was a priest. But in spite of all that, he became a preacher. He became a priest, and he served God faithfully his whole life. Most Jews at that time turned their back on God, but not Elizabeth, not Zechariah. I read this, this stanza of a poem that applies to Elizabeth and Zechariah. It says, We need the faith to go a path untrod, the power to be alone and vote with God. Nobody in that society was following God except a few people like Zechariah and Elizabeth. And I want to be one of those that no matter what my nation does, no, water, no matter what my city, my county does, I want to always be on God's side. The whole reason Luke began this story with this story is because God's about to do something new. There's all kinds of covenants in the Old Testament. The New Testament, it actually, it means new covenant. God's about to do something new in the New Testament. And Paul says this about the Old Testament. He says in Romans 15, 4, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have, what's that last word? 
Have you ever doubted that God was at work in your life? Anyone? You ever doubted that, that people love you, that God loves you, that he has a purpose for your life? So the, the Christmas story gives an emphatic, yes, God does care. Can God do anything about your situation? The, the Christmas story is an emphatic, yes, that God is already doing something. Jesus said, my father is always at work. God is always working. Not only can he do something, not only is he doing something. The Bible says he always tells somebody what he's about to do. One of my favorite verses right now is Psalm 25, 14. It says, the Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his what? Covenant known to them. God is about to make his new covenant known to a faithful, blameless man named Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. Now, Luke 1, verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So there are 24 teams of priests that take care of the the temple of God. And you would serve at different times during the year. When you weren't serving, you would go home. So this time, at this particular time, Zechariah's team of priests is taking care of the temple. Now what they were doing is they had to decide who gets to go burn incense and so they would cast lots. It's kind of like drawing straws. I don't know if you've ever drawn straws, but, but like if there's five people, you put five straws in there and whoever's holding the straws, they make it look like this one's taller. You do not want the short straw. And so we would pull them out and we would all pull them up and go, whoever has the short straw, oh man, I have to do something I don't want to do. Or if you watch Survivor, you know, when they go to, they have a tie vote and they're going to figure out who's going home and you draw rocks, you draw the black rock. This was completely opposite. In this case, you wanted to be chosen. It was one of the greatest privileges of your life, and it might, might come one time in a priest's lifetime, and Zechariah is chosen to go offer incense before God, and incense re- represents the prayers before God. He's right outside the Holy of Holies, the most holiest place, the holiest place in, in Israel. And he goes and he stands right outside the curtain that separates the inner courtyard from the Holy of Holies where God dwells. And everybody else leaves the temple. This is what they did. Look what happens in verse 10. When the time for the burning of the incense came, so he was chosen, great honor. All the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. I'm sorry, I'm laughing because when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear, overwhelmed with fear. Why? Because nobody else was supposed to be in there. And... When you see an angel, every time someone in the Bible saw an angel, they were, they were gripped with fear, overwhelmed with fear. And so the angel gives the standard response in the scripture. Every time someone is afraid of an angel, here's what the angel says. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Standard response of an angel. People all the time tell me that they've seen angels. I hear people say they've seen angels. If you weren't scared to death on your face or running for the hills, you didn't see an angel. I don't know what you saw, but it wasn't an angel. Because they are so otherworldly that the Bible says when people see these, these creatures from the other world, they think they're seeing God and many of them have bowed down before them and the angel will say, don't worship me, I'm a created being. Worship God alone. They're so big, so strong, so scary that you will be gripped with fear. You see, God is so powerful that even when he dials it down to a one, he is still scary. Now, the angel appears while Zechariah is worshiping. He's offering incense, which is the prayers of the people. And he's scared to death, and he's a good guy. Imagine if it's you. He's good according to the scriptures. 
If an angel appears to you, you're just going to start confessing stuff. I cheated on that test because you're going to be so scared to death. The Bible says he was right before God. He didn't have anything to be afraid of. Verse 13, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you're to call him John. And this is the most famous John in in the history of the world. We call him John the Baptist. God is a God who keeps promises. He's a faithful God. Look what he says about, the angel says about this John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit before he is even born. This was something new, because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon you temporarily to accomplish whatever God wanted you to do. But this guy is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit before he's even born, chosen by God, conceived by God. through his parents. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. Why would he have to bring them back? Because you couldn't tell. Remember last week we said that that a godly person, uh, lowercase g, is one who reflects the glory of the living God? These people were so ungodly, you couldn't even tell they were Jewish. You couldn't even tell they even knew that there was a real God in existence. Here's what else he says. And he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and disobedient to the, to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and he is very diplomatic, and my wife is well along in years. Smart guy. He's like, hey, big, scary, angelic being. You're a little late to this party because do you know how old we are? My dad, I used to call my mom every, every Saturday morning. And most of the time mom would answer the phone. But sometimes mom would, so like our washer and dryer were in the basement. So sometimes mom would be in the basement changing clothes or whatever, you know, from the washer to the dryer. Sometimes she would be somewhere. And dad had a hard time getting around the last few years. And uh, he would come to the phone and he would answer the phone and he'd be, <sighs> and I'm like, Dad, you've been chasing Mima around the house? And he would get embarrassed. After a while, though, he goes, No, that equipment doesn't work anymore. I'm like, okay, Dad, can I talk to Mom? You know, that type of deal. I think that, that Zechariah was going, Hey, hey, we've tried for kids for years. It doesn't work. Look what the angel says. Then the angel said, I'm Gabriel. This is huge. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And this is very different than Mary's reaction. Mary's reaction was, how can this be? Because she was a virgin. She was young, and she's going like, uh, I've heard the story of the birds and the bees. I hadn't done that, houses. And he said, God will come upon you. But this is Zechariah, and this is crazy because Zechariah has lived his life believing a promise from 2,000 years before he was born. Abraham, how old was Abraham when, he, when his wife got pregnant? 99. You're going to believe you're going to live right before God, and then when an angel, Gabriel, stands up and says, hey, you're going to have a child, you're going to go, hey, how's that work? You've been believing and living right before God? Do you not remember the promise that was given to Abraham 2,000 years ago? Oh, 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 yeah. And then look what happened. Now you will be silent, not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their, what, what are those last two words? This means... God had this day on his calendar before the beginning of time. 
how can this be? The God who spoke the world into existence planned it long ago. He put it, it's the appointed time. It's on his calendar. How can this be? You who believe in the promise to Abraham, how can this be? Do you know the God of Abraham? We're going to look at this verse next week. We're going to pull it apart, but, but I wanted to put this in here. Galatians 4, 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come at just the right time, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born of a woman, born under the law. It, it was not an accident. God had been planning it before we were even humans, before there was time. Luke 1, 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. Listen to what she says. She's lived her whole life. She's a preacher's kid and she's lived right before God. And she says, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he's shown favor and he's taken away my disgrace among the people because God is a God who keeps his promises. And it's an incredible story of God's faithfulness to people who were faithful to him. And it's just the warm-up act. This story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist, it's the warm-up band before the band you paid to get the tickets to see. For thousands of years, there were a few Jews who lived as if God is a God who keeps his promises. Here's the main act. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel, the same angel, to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. God always keeps his promise. It does not matter what's happening in the world. It doesn't matter how insignificant you think you are. God is significant. And if God gives you a promise, he will keep that promise. So if you've ever wondered, is Jesus for real? Is it worth it? If you've ever struggled with, do I stay in this marriage? Do I leave? Do I keep my integrity? Do I cheat on a test? Should I keep my virginity? Nobody else is. If you've ever struggled with discouragement, the Christmas story is for you. When I was in college, I roomed with a guy named Doug, and they called us Doug Squared because we were always together. And one night we'd gone to bed. It was a Saturday night, and uh, we had twin beds back in our room as a one-bedroom apartment. And we hear this noise at the front door, and, and it's his girlfriend and her friend who's married. And they're drunk as skunks. And they're like, and he had the chain on, and so she's going, Hey, Doug, let us in. And I'm like, dude, that's for you. That ain't for me. I, I rolled over. I'm going to go back to sleep. Didn't know, so he goes and lets her in, and she, she's wanting to, to hang out, and she brought her married friend with her. And, and her married friend was very curvaceous. I didn't think anything of it. I'm in bed. I got to go to church. I'm a minister. I'm a, I, I'm a part-time youth minister and, and music minister at my church. And so this, this girl, I'm, I, I hear the door, our bedroom door open up. She comes and crawls in bed with me and puts her arm around me. And I didn't know what to do. I jumped up on my bed, ran to the bathroom, locked the door, got in the shower, pulled the curtain. And she's beating on the door. Wash me. She's drunk as a skunk. Wash burn. Let me in. And I'm like, dear God, what do I do? I'm like, I ain't opening that door. So she goes out to my roommate. She goes, 
Washburn's afraid of me. And he goes, of course he's afraid of you. You're a married woman. You crawled in bed with him. And at the time, I was not, I, I didn't have a clue what was going on, but I look back now and I see that, that the enemy of God was wanting to take me down. I was a youth minister and I had teenagers who were looking up to me. And the enemy wanted to take me down so that I couldn't be what God wanted me to be. When I graduated from college, I moved to Bedford, Texas. I lived about a mile from one of my brothers. He had three little kids, and, and uh, I was so alone. I broke up with my girlfriend because I knew I wasn't supposed to marry her, and, and I would go home because the kids were little, and they would go to bed early. And so if they were in bed, I would go home, and I'd be so alone in my apartment. I lived in an apartment complex filled with single people who do single things. In the apartment complex themselves, they would send out a little flyer um, Almost every weekend, there'd be a keg party at the pool every weekend. And they're like, come, meet your neighbors. And, and by this time, I was, I was serving in, in ministry again. And, uh, and I remember sitting in my apartment going, God, this sucks. I'm so alone. My brother kept wanting me to go to the bigger church down the road because the church we were in, there were, there were like no marryable people my age. He's like, go down there. <laughs> oh, if you've ever been to, to, a, to a Baptist singles, it's kind of like a meat market. And he's like, go down there and find you a wife. And I'm like, no, no. God's called me here. And I remember being so alone that it hurt. And I said, God, is, this, is it worth it to follow you? Long story short, several months later, in uh, Huntsville, Texas, I didn't know this was going on. Janie's walking across campus and she's saying, God, I'm sick of the way the world does dating and marriage and I'm sick of it. If you want me to be single, I'll be single. If you want to bring a man into my life, you're going to have to bring that man into my life. I'm in Austin, Texas, the same day. I'm saying, God, I'm sick of this dating life the way the world says you've got to do it. If you want me to be married, you're going to have to show me. 28 years later, is it worth it to follow God? I'd do it again in a heartbeat. I tell her every year on our, on our anniversary, I tell her every year on, on uh, Valentine's Day, I'd do it again. I'd choose you again. Don't you believe the lie that God doesn't keep his promises? He always keeps his promises. Let's pray together. Father, this Christmas, remind us that there is an enemy who lies. You call him the father of lies, and he's telling people that they're insignificant. He's telling people that, that their lives don't matter, that, that they're unlovable, that, that they're unusable, and all of that is lies from the pit of hell. Remind us that when you stepped out of heaven and you gave yourself that name, God with us, Emmanuel, that you were promising that it's always worth it to follow you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.